0: Welcome, everyone, to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deepings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. To support the show, visit us at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. In this episode, we'll cover The Stand,
1: Book 2, Chapters 57 through 60 let's start the show. After not much happening in our last reading, things really pick up as we finish book two. The power comes on in Boulder and quickly goes off since everything is still on. Larry and Franny break into Harold's house and find his journal. Nadine plants a bomb in Nick's house where a committee meeting is scheduled to be held. Just as Harold prepares to set off the bomb remotely. A group of people approach the house with news that Mother Abigail has returned. It is enough of a distraction to save some lives, but Nick, Sue Stern, and a half dozen others are killed. Mother Abigail summons the committee and orders Stu, Larry, Ralph, and Glenn to go to Vegas and face Flag. Franny tries to stop them, but the four agree. Mother Abigail dies, and the group heads west. Yeah, a lot happened in this chunk of the book, Sean. Yeah, I was like, boom, 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 quick, 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 like this, this, this. Everything sort of came to a head. And these are a bunch of scenes that I remember. I talked about how like there is nothing memorable in the last section that and like in this one, I'm like, oh, yeah, I I remember this is going to happen and this is going to happen and this is going to happen. And I don't remember them all happening in such a condensed space as they did, because all of a sudden it was like, all right. They're on the road. They're heading west. I was like, wow, that happened quick.
0: Yeah, maybe if we were reading about 200 pages at a time, we wouldn't have had that much to complain about last episode.
1: Could be, could be. So one of the things I noticed, Jay, in this section is that King talks about sanity and insanity a lot. Hmm. And we have touched on this a little bit throughout this book about how some of the characters seem to be going through PTSD and... Some of the characters are driven mad by what's happening with the super flu. And it's become the new normal here. Yeah. That folks are just not quite all there anymore.
0: Even if they're not acting a textbook crazy in some way, everybody has had to adjust to horrific experiences and new ways of of things working and dead bodies every time you... you (laughs) go to a place that nobody's been in a while, like, oh, look, another rotting corpse. Wonderful. Yeah, That kind of stuff can probably wear on you. And uh, once you start getting a nerd to that type of thing, I think your outlook on the whole world is definitely going to be different.
1: And so there's probably a lot of language in here that doesn't fly as well in 2020 about loosely throwing around the words crazy and insane and Mm -hmm. Off their rocker and and such as that. But like the idea that these people are at least aware of the fact that there is some sort of mental illness that is going around amongst them is a lot. And one of the things that is constantly messaged in Boulder, at least, is that Vegas is where the crazies are. Yeah. They all ended up there. And it made me think like, you're all sort of crazy. I think they just are saying like, that's a different type of crazy over in Vegas. We're crazy in our own like good way, but those are the bad guys and they're crazy in like, crucifying people upside down and Mm -hmm. wanting to murder everybody type of crazy
0: yeah but there are a lot of similarities between the two groups that we as more objective observers can see yeah like you can say like oh everybody niggas they're like it's like a cult and they'll do anything that flag tells them to do including crucify people and everything but when mother abigail speaks everyone listens right she's not telling them to do evil things but they're still willing to do just about anything she asks. That feels like a pretty tight parallel there. Right. When we say the crazies are in Vegas, like not everybody in Vegas is like Trash Can Man. They're mostly just normal, average people who, for whatever reason, were not drawn to Mother Abigail. They were drawn to Vegas and they're still doing the same kind of work. They're fixing generators, they're getting the lights back on,
1: they're crucifying people. You know, <laughs> yeah, normal stuff. You know, it's like uh, the uh, Patton Oswald bit about the, the Death Star, right? Like, there's just mm. a bunch of union guys working on this big construction project. Right. By the way, could you kill a couple of rebels on the way out? Sure. Can, whatever. I mean, it's
0: not in my contract, but... <laughs> hey, I understand. I mean, we're we're all the heroes of our own story. If you're the cook in the Vegas uh, casino, feeding everybody, most of the time you're just making food, keeping people fed. That's an honorable thing to do. Right. Just that you're also the guy who apparently knows how to butcher things. So when it's time to torture somebody, it's like, <laughs> can you call the butcher over? Um, we don't need fries today. We need We need somebody to suffer.
1: Yeah. <laughs> now, two of the characters here who are sort of caught in between are Nadine and Harold. Hmm. They are in Boulder, but they are drawn to Flag and drawn to, to the West. And Leo, as we've seen him done before, has this insight into what they're like. And he is especially insightful into Nadine, who at one point he treated like, like a mom. Yeah. And now when Larry talks to him, he can see that she's changed. And he says specifically, it's like he's rubbing... He being flagged. It's like he's rubbing away the part of her brain that knows right from wrong. Little by little, he's rubbing that part away. And when it's gone, she'll be as crazy as everyone else in the West. Crazier. That idea that she's slowly going insane. She seems to realize that Mm -hmm. she's begging Larry for, for help. And Larry turns her away. And even when she's with Harold, like she's trying to maintain that piece of sanity. And Harold's aware of that too. And Harold's like, yeah, I'm totally going evil here. (laughs) Like, Uh there's no real hope for me. Like once I blow up this committee meeting and kill their entire committee and anybody else who happens away, I'm going to be pure evil. I understand that when I go west, something bad's going to happen to me in all probability. But he says, if I can go down to whatever's waiting for me with my mind intact, that will at least be something. As long as I've got my sanity and I can be myself and who I am, that's what's important to me. So there's this combination of understanding the insanity that they're going through to some extent and trying to fight it in in different ways.
0: Yeah, in some ways, Nadine and Harold have the worst of both worlds because they don't get to just go to Vegas and find a place in this flags society and just be okay. They have to do a terrible thing to the society that they're in to earn their place there yeah and that thing tears them apart their psyches are are forever ruined even the promise of what could have been some kind of happiness or or fulfillment with with flag's group they already know the real the reality of that like flag's not going to bring them to paradise he's going to say hey you did what you did i can't trust you either you know kind of thing and and nadine is just Going to completely fracture, like her mind's going to break, or, or is breaking already. It's pretty clear, like to Harold, that it's just gonna get worse. And even Nadine's like 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 her voice broke when she screamed, and it seems like that's like permanent damage, like she actually tore something in her throat. Right. And her hair is now completely white instead of just a little bit. So she's got the physical damage and the mental damage. I wonder. When she threw herself at Larry that one last time, she saw Larry as a way out, as a as a cure for this impulse that she was feeling. Did it have to be Larry, or did she just simply need to lose her virginity to make herself an impure vessel that Flagg would no longer want? Yeah, so I was thinking a little bit about this. And and by the way, I'm using Flag's perception of impure vessel. <laughs> I'm not saying she would be. Yeah.
1: yeah. I I almost wonder if both Nadine and Harold, they were searching for love, and they were rejected by the people who could have given them that love. Mm. Uh, in Nadine's case, Larry, and in Harold's cl- case, Franny. It wasn't I don't I don't want to say a pure love, but like they didn't quite understand what love was. Mm. Either one of them, they had this distorted vision of what that would be. You know, Nadine had this idea of what sex was, and and. How that would change her and make her different, and then Harold obviously was overly possessive of of Frank, so it wasn't going to work out in either of their cases. So I don't know if, if that's the point that that King's trying to get across, or if it's something else. And I mean, that's a good question about did it have to be Larry? Because I'm sure Nadine could have found somebody. And yeah, she had a lot of uh, opportunities with Harold. With Harold, even yeah. So I don't know if she thought like it had to be somebody that she had dreamt about and saw. I mean, she obviously had all these distorted feelings to begin with. So I I don't know what the answer is to that. Either way, they've they've, they've crossed over the line. And the scene where Nadine does in the drive-in theater is a really cool idea, especially like reading it now when drive-in theaters are making a little bit of a comeback Mm -hmm. in the United States. It was just sort of eerie about how like, hey, there's a plague. And drive-in theaters are going to make an important part in this book about the plague. And it was just like, oh, wow, like that's neat. But when all the speakers come to life and they're all flag talking at her, uh, which is actually a new scene for the 1990 version from the original, but it, it worked really well. Because there
0: were no drive-in theaters in
1: 1980. Well, there were, but there were definitely less in 1990 and then right. even less more recently. So,
0: Yeah. And I guess if King were to update it again for today, he would make it like a bunch of Amazon Alexas or something like that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> TikTok videos. Everyone's cell phones would just like start saying, Nadine, Nadine. <laughs> so there was one other thing that I wanted to talk about in terms of the sanity and, and insanity idea, and that's like religious fervor versus suspicion. Mm. It kind of revolves around like how Mother Abigail sees everything that's happening through that lens of her Christian faith. And that's fine. That's how she's lived her whole life. This isn't new for her. The pressures of all of the craziness that has happened to everybody because of the superflu has either awoken something in them or made them maybe more, more inclined to listen to somebody who claims to have a connection to God the way that Abigail does. So it starts to take on some of the aspects of, of a cult and of religious fervor. There isn't enough skepticism. Like Nick was was like the shining example of skepticism. He he was on board with making plans, he was on board with building this community, and he was on board with partnering with Mother Abigail in a lot of these things, but he never totally bought into the faith part of it. Right. If you're willing to follow Abigail too completely it can become just as dangerous as if you're following the flag and we get some examples of that when Abigail gives her final commands for the, the the group of of four people to go west. yep they're just like, okay, you got it right <laughs> we'll do it done despite the protests of others despite really good arguments against it they just do it.
1: Your point that Nick was that one person who was a skeptic and when they were in Nebraska, he, he went out out of the house and had this like, all right, I'm going to think about this. And then he comes back and he's like, okay, you're going to believe in your God. I'm not going to believe in your God, but I did dream about you. So I'm at least going to follow you to Boer. Mm-hmm. We saw that pulling of him, like, which way should I go? We've seen Glenn make that very slowly, right? Like Glenn is a man of science and academics, but we've seen him change over time to get to mother Abigail sign. And I think he says like, yeah, I'm totally bought in. Like that was the whole discussion of rationality versus irrationality that we've had. Right. Like he's mm-hmm. made that, that journey, but it happens really quick with a couple of characters here. Like you said, like Stu early on in the section that we read says mother Abigail does what her God tells you to do. He said, harshly, that's the same God murdered his own boy or so I heard. And so Stu's like, wait a minute. I don't know if I should be following God. Yeah franny's shocked that he says that she's like "Stu, why you know like she sort of thinks it's sacrilegious that he says says that and she's like oh why would you say that you know and then like you said when mother abigail's on her deathbed and she's like hey Stu, you're gonna go west and you're gonna lead the group he's like all right yeah on the way and then it's franny who has the change right she's like no you can't send Stu." so it's very much a how situational you want to be in this this part but like they do change fairly quickly and i think that's one of the things that's missing with without Nick there is that voice of skepticism.
0: And like you said, Glenn kind of came around on on this too, being uh the the academic and the sociologist, but he takes it to the to the degree that I think is the the appropriate or maybe the more accurate uh like bigger picture approach mm. where he t- he goes one step beyond religion and, and goes right to magic. Yeah. And that's really what's going on here. We know this because we're familiar with the dark tower stories and i think that mother abigail will always be kind of stuck looking at anything like this through the that lens of of religion but this is really magic and and glenn says i no longer think that sociology or psychology or any other ology will put a stop to flag i think only white magic will do that and white magic is that's that's the white that's yep. that's what the gunslinger represents right if Roland were in that room hearing in that conversation, he'd be like, yep, you guys got it. Yep, That's the real thing that you need to follow. That's what's going to solve this problem. It's magic. Whatever name you want to put on it, that's what
1: it boils down to. And that's the cover of the book as well, right? Yeah. Those two figures, the white and the dark facing off against each other. It's not Mother Abigail and Flag facing off each other. It's not God and the devil facing off against each other. It's the white versus the the dark
0: hmm there's another main topic here that I picked up on. It also has kind of a two sides of the of a coin thing. It's entombment versus resurrection. And where this kind of really stuck out for me was when the lights came on, when the the lights came on, and Nick saw those lights come on, and Unfortunately, for Nick, that brief moment of the electricity coming back on was the only time he, he saw them. Because when they they came on and worked and stayed on, he had died already. So when he saw those lights come back on, he felt the opposite of the dread he felt in Shoyo. In Shoyo, like when he watched all the lights go off and he watched the world go dark, he felt a feeling of entombment. But here, when the lights came on, he felt a feeling of resurrection. Mm-hmm. I don't know if resurrection is the opposite of entombment but it's definitely something that it's like it's unburial but it's also renewed life. Yeah. And that's really what's going on here. The relatively simple thing of turning the electricity back on in the in the in the town is life is really starting anew.
1: Yep. And it's very religious as we were just talking about. You don't hear entombment a lot in modern parlance right like people are buried or people are cremated Mm -hmm. but jesus was entombed. yeah it's a very different like oh we're going to take this body and put it in a cave and put a rock in front of it and there you go and so entombment and resurrection immediately in my head at least draw on on biblical parallels specifically jesus's story and and if we think of nick as somebody who's being sacrificed here for you know some greater good you know nick as is mentioned throughout this section is considered the heart of the committee and the heart of, of Boulder. He led the first group to Mother Abigail and one of the first groups to Boulder. And so a lot of that is that Nick has been held up as, amongst all the characters, one of the, the more pure at heart of all these characters. Mm-hmm. There's a nice piece after he dies and Larry starts to talk about like, hey, here's, here's who we all are in, in this group. Sue and Franny are the conscience and Glenn's the smart guy and Stu's the face of it. And I'm just sort of like that dude, but like Nick was the heart of the committee. Mm -hmm. He was, he was the soul and and we've lost that, that shining light. And again, it's shortly after the lights go on and come off. So that whole power thing sort of nifty just the amount of work that goes into it and how they figured it all out. And then like the guy immediately knows like, Oh, here's our problem. Here's what we have to do. Let's Mm -hmm. be the unplugging committee. And we're just going to go around and unplug and turn things off. I'm not exactly sure. Realistically, like everything would have been left on, but enough things would Uh, enough things probably would air conditioners and such that it might be the case. But like, it's not like everybody died suddenly and like every TV and blend like blenders wouldn't have been on. Like you wouldn't just like, Hey, I'm gonna leave the blender on and then go die somewhere of the plague a few hours later.
0: Like. Or it's your your last thing, like you're you're about to to die, and you're just dragging yourself across the kitchen and you reach up that one last time, hit the button on the blender, and then the end.
1: Must make toast. <laughs> <laughs> what did you think of Nick's death, Jay, in the big run? So you know, like he dies, and I guess I, I mean I've read the book numerous times. I knew Nick was gonna die, but like it does seem sort of sudden, like maybe his story wasn't finished. Yeah, I agree with that. We spent a
0: lot of time with Nick and in Nick's head early on in the book. Like The, the moment that we were introduced to his character, it there was a lot of, of time that we got to spend with Nick. But then all of the characters that we met, they were all leading to this thing. They were leading to this gathering in Boulder and this forming of this new society and how that was going to work. And it feels like Once all of the characters were together, we stopped spending any time with Nick. He showed up for just brief scenes Mm. as sort of an intermediary with Tom Cullen and a couple of other things. But mostly it was just Nick was part of a committee meeting. Nick was part of another committee meeting. And all of the things that he did for the committee, all the things he did for the community, most of those things were just relayed to us secondhand. Like this was Nick's great idea. Or I can't believe Nick suggested this. That's brilliant. It felt like we needed to know Nick and he needed to be a character in the story so that he could do all the things he did in Boulder. But when he was there doing those things, if you want to look at this as sort of like a fate, like Nick's fate was to get to Boulder and help to found this new society. Once he was there doing that work that fate brought him to, he disappears from the narrative he's so busy doing the work that he's not doing anything worth sharing on the page. So when he does die, that's like the first time that we
1: spend any time with him in his head in quite some time. And Nick's gone. Yeah. I thought the same thing too. Like you you use the word intermediary and that's a good point. You know, a lot of what Nick had to say to other people had to go through somebody anyways, you know, Mm -hmm. often Ralph, we had to write things down or have notes and somebody else would read them or, or translate for him, And when he was alone, when he was a solo character, we did spend that time in his head. And that wouldn't work when you were around other people who you didn't need that to be. And so getting that from his perspective was a little bit lost. Having said all that, there needed to be somebody who died, I think, mm-hmm. in the section. And it needed to be somebody of, of, of a major character that, that would have that impetus for everyone else to sort of gather around and, and do something about. It. And, and Nick was one of them. And that whole scene when the committee is meeting is a good example of Hitchcock's difference between surprise and suspense. Ah, uh, yeah. Like almost almost literally, uh, Hitchcock is, has said that the difference between the two is surprise is when two people are sitting in a coffee shop and a bomb goes off suspense is when we see a man place a bomb under the table and watch the two people meet to have coffee and that's exactly what happens right we see nadine actually go into the house figure out where to put the bomb she sees nick's papers and so like we know the bomb's there and then we get hey look franny's at the committee meeting and she's leaning up against the closet door Mm -hmm. and oh what's over there and you know and then she starts to get a weird feeling and nick gets this weird feeling of what's going on and so like It's this perfect buildup of suspense because we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know. I I knew some of what was going to happen, but like I'm guessing for a first time reader, they're like, oh, somebody, something bad's going to happen here. I know it. I just don't know who it's going to impact. And you're led to think that it's going to be Franny. Franny's close by. We're in her head. She is hurt, but she is not killed like Nick and Sue and some of the others are. I would say that this was
0: wonderfully executed as a moment of suspense. I've read the book before, too. I knew that the, the bomb was going to go off and that Nick was going to die. But even knowing that, and even with all of the other stuff, I was still kind of on the edge of my seat reading this this passage that was like, oh, is the bomb going to go off? Will it work? Will, will Harold's plan come to fruition? Will Nick get to the bomb in time to pull the, all the wires out of the detonator? and? <laughs> Of course, I knew the answers to those questions, but I still felt that suspense. It's great.
1: Yeah. The irony of Harold wanting to claim credit for it by using a walkie-talkie, and then he speaks into it, and he says, this is Harold Lauder, and the only person who's around to hear it is somebody who's deaf and who couldn't hear it anyways as the bomb goes off. (laughs) Yeah. Like, it's supposed to be his crowning achievement. And then, you know, we get that view from his perspective, and Nadine's like, do you think it worked? And he's like, of course it did. Look out, look over there. Who could have survived that? And meanwhile, most of the people survived. Like they did do a lot of damage, but not to the extent that Harold was doing. And it, it's just another incidence of Harold thinking he's smarter than everyone else. Mm-hmm. And really, he's not.
0: He's pretty smart, but he's not smarter than else. Oh yeah,
1: I'm not saying he's yeah. not, but yeah. He's too smart for his own good, perhaps, is what I'm, what I'm thinking. He wants to show off, and even in showing off, he fails. Hmm which is typical for Harold. Well,
0: Sean, we've reached a, a point in the book where the bad moon has risen. Oh, yeah. And that's an almost exact quote from Mother Abigail herself. Mm. She's saying it's time to actually do the thing that you're here to do. And it wasn't to form a committee or vote on who's on what job and
1: clean up stuff. It's it's to your stand. To actually take a stand against flag and that's the big outcome of the bomb is that everyone's talking about flag he had sort of been that undercurrent that no one was willing to talk about out loud but once mother abigail returns once the bomb goes off everyone knows like yeah Harold did this but it was at the behest of flag and so everyone is riled up flag 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 what are we going to do about this we're worried about it is he going to kill more of us what's going to go on and abigail has a plan and that is to send four men the rest of the men on the committee not franny but the the four men and send them on their on their way west to face flag with literally just what they've got on their bodies at the time yeah i know that's probably some sort of like biblical style
0: type of command but it just really aggravates me i'm saying walk across the country or or a third of the country and do it without i don't know some clothes some food maybe a good pair of shoes or boots don't take those precautions or, or or enhance your chances of success. Just go, just, just walk out there. I mean, this was like crazy time in the middle of the night. People were, were awakened to go meet Abigail on her deathbed as she, as she died. Someone could have like one slipper on, you know, like, like (laughs) you ran out the door in your bathroom in one slipper and to see what was going on. And it's like, go now with whatever clothes you have on your back. Like, this isn't
1: Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. This is right. I got a towel and a pair of sweatpants. I'm ready to go. Yeah. One of my favorite reveals of the first book of
0: that is like the the story begins with Arthur in his bathrobe because he's just lounging around his house, and then the the whole story happens, and there is never a moment when he changes into any other clothes, and you forget about this, and then like the story concludes, and you re- and then some there's a There's some some description about the fact that he's still wearing the bathrobe. Yep. And you're like, what? He's just, (laughs) what? So I'm picturing Stu, you know, like walking the vase in a bathrobe. And that's just crazy to me. So
1: So the four guys are all down with this, right? Like, they're like, all right, this is the way it's got to be. And Franny freaks out, calls Abigail a witch, says, your God is cruel. How are we going to do this? And then Abigail the last bit of strength she had sort of grabs Franny and like heals her of her injuries from the bomb going off, you know, like she doesn't have the bad neck whiplash anymore and and the bad back. Yeah. When she was attacked by a couch. Yeah. Franny's sort of uh, accepting of, of what's going to happen, especially when Stu says like, Hey, I'm going to do this. So I got to do this. I thought it
0: was interesting that Abigail never actually named Glenn for the quest. (laughs) You know, she said, Well, I thought it was going to be Nick, but Nick died. So, Stu, you're in charge. And if you die, then it's Larry. And Larry, if, if it's rough. And then bef- before she says anything to Glenn, specifically, Glenn just kind of fills in for her. He's like, Well, I guess I'm I'm the fourth one on the list then. And she doesn't say, Yes, it's you, Glenn. You must go. She just like doesn't acknowledge what he said. So, but she doesn't agree either but it's like maybe she only meant for the 3. Right. And Glenn's is going on this journey for no reason.
1: <laughs>
0: Unnecessarily. I didn't see you in my dream. There were just sort of three. Uh. Yeah, you know, she's moments away from dying. You know, maybe she just like missed the fact that he spoke under, you know, just mumbled something, I guess. Oh, I guess I'm the fourth one then. Right. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I don't want to be left out. <laughs> I'm important too. I've been tagging along all the time. Yeah. To your point about the supplies too, like the the easy way around it is just like, okay, we'll leave right now and we'll walk about five miles and then stop at Costco and pick up everything that we need. Yeah. (laughs) We just happen to find it now. Like we don't have to go the whole way with nothing, right? Like we could just.
0: I'm sure there's like a, a, you know, an outdoor supply store that's somewhere that they on there. In Colorado, no. There's no outdoor supply stores there. (laughs) It's like Starbucks. You know, there's a Campmore one block away from an REI,
1: one block away from a Cabela's. That'd be fine. It it is a great scene, though, because it does bring all of our characters together. Abigail's been missing all this time. And Glenn had mentioned earlier and some of the other characters, too, that like, well, she's gone and we thought everyone was going to be upset about her being gone. But they got over it quick when she was missing. They were like, oh, well, she knows what she's doing, you know, like, or or she's dead, either way. But, like, the, the town had moved on entirely. It didn't re- require her. Right. But when she came back, everything stopped again, right? Like, there were still the people working on the power, but everyone else was sort of ho- holding vigil outside Larry's house where she was was staying. It really brought back the importance of Abigail and mm-hmm. reminded, I think, everyone of why they were there. It's just sort of Odd to me that, like, you know, Abigail thinks, like, hey, the reason that all of this has happened is so that we can make a stand against flag. And it's specifically so you four can. So, like, God has told me that he's killed off 99.99% of the world and brought thousands of you to Boulder. But really, only you four are important. You're the four who need to go do something. And everything else is just sort of like red shirts in, in Star Trek. Like, it doesn't really matter. You're just sort of there as as background filler information, but maybe it's more of like, Hey, they're doing it for these other people. But when you first read it, you're like, Oh really? All this is happening just for these four people. But
0: yeah, but it it does have that, that
1: old Testament twang to it though.
0: Yeah. You know, Noah's Ark kind of story. It's just like, (laughs) yeah, we got to wipe out everybody except for a little, for a few of you and all of the animals, except for, (laughs) except for a pair of each. And, and then, We can repopulate fresh and uh, it's like, well, well, I'm going to, God's done it again, right? He's killed just about everybody. And then he's going to send these four individuals to fight off evil once and for all. Yep. In a bathrobe.
1: (laughs) I can just sort of imagine like Larry's just wearing like a white t-shirt and sweatpants. Doesn't even have underwear on. He's like, wait a minute, what? I thought we were just. Are you kidding? Larry never
0: wears underwear. He's a commando guy all the way. He is a rock star, right? Yeah. He probably sleeps in leather pants, right?
1: Always. Although that'd be pretty uncomfortable.
0: (laughs) Not if you're a rock star.
1: Well, we've touched on a couple already, but I think it's time to get into some more Dark Tower Thinnies. When Abigail is returned. Everyone's recollecting their dreams about Flag and Mother Abigail. And one of the people unnamed says that in his dream, Flag was a ticket taker in a subway station. And the dreamer was running through the tunnel and, and saw Flag chasing after him or something along those lines. That immediately put me in the mind of Roland and Jake underground in the first book of The Dark oh, yeah. movie, and The Gunslinger when they're in that that abandoned subway. Station. I think at one point, Roland or Jake opens up a ticket booth and there's a desiccated corpse in there as well. And I could just sort of picture this sort of happening to get all together. All of that also puts me in mind of the musical The Wiz, the movie of which I watched dozens of times when I was younger with uh, Diana Ross. And there's a a cool scene in the subway station that always was sort of spooky as well. So Hmm. abandoned subway station sort of freaked me out.
0: Yeah. This one's a little bit of a retread, but <laughs> if King gets to repeat himself, I get to call out another finny, And that's when Stu decides it's really important that he tells everybody that the last one he just sat down and read all the way through was this story about rabbits, Watership Down. I got it for a nephew of mine and I just started to read it and then kind of trails off. <laughs> like, yeah, okay. So, you know, like back in the beginning of The Stand... King worked really hard to put this book in Stu's life experience so that he could make some analogy to Watership Down. And then here, it crops up again, and Stu tells the people around him the same story that we, the readers, have already (laughs) already
1: heard. But, yeah, Watership Down, Watership Down, Shardick. Stu's like, Glenn, you're not the only person who reads. I read. I've read Watership Down and Watership Down. In this book about rabbits, I think it's a warship down and then Larry picks it up because Stu mentions it, and Larry's like, "Oh yeah, I read it and and they talk specifically about how the rabbits had it soft. They were big and well fed, and they always lived in one place, but there was something wrong there. none of the rabbits knew what it was. It seemed like they didn't want to know, and that's sort of an analogy to what they're living like in Boulder, right? like they've sort of had the blinders on about what's happening there. And what they didn't want to know is that the farmer kept the rabbits there, kept them well-fed, because every once in a while, Yank, whoops, oh, this one's going in the stew. Hassan Pfeffer tonight. That is the analogy that they are trying to draw. They go further with like, oh, one of the characters is like Harold, because Harold's writing like this. And it's like, we get it, King. You're well-read. You want to you wanna point this out, and you're putting it in Stew and Larry. I know King's
0: extraordinarily well-read. But the fact that he's like keeps going back to the the Richard Adams well yep. in these references, it almost feels like he's kind of like
1: not that well read. But
0: yeah, I'll allow it. Sure.
1: The last Star Tower Thinny I had was that Mother Abigail calls Franny's baby the chap. Ooh. And says that this chap will have four fathers, the four fathers being the four that are going west, even though none of them are the biological fathers. These would be the four that I guess the idea being they will protect the world so that you can have your son and rebuild civilization back to your Noah's Ark type of type of reference. But uh, interesting that the the word chap is used there, uh, similar to Suzanne. Absolutely. The fact that he has sort of a very complex father. Yes. Thing going on. Just like Susanna's chap. Also true. The fan favorite section is next. Yucking it up. Larry is having survivor's guilt after the bomb goes off. And he also has some dark humor, as Larry is prone to do. And he says that Larry is keeping his head while all the others around him are losing theirs. And uh, that's specifically a dark humor because one of the women who dies in the bomb blast, was teaching Leo to play the flute. And the way that she died was that Glenn's tape recorder after the bomb blast beheaded her. sort of sliced through her neck and she was beheaded. So very vivid way of putting it. And then, of course, typical King Dark humor on top of it. Everyone's losing their head around here.
0: Am I right? Yo, <laughs> no. The thing that I added to the list of yucking it up topics is an illusion about the dentist, which kind of surprised you didn't call this one out. <laughs> I do hate dentists. There, There's this description of getting a tooth pulled and what it feels like and how it if you if a dentist does it, it the tooth is moved and it doesn't hurt at that moment but later how it feels and it, there's a hole in you you've been gouged you could slip your tongue into the hole where part of you was living a second ago and that's just like it's so accurate of a description but also like such a terrible one it when we normally think about getting a tooth pulled we don't at least for me i've never thought of it as like losing a, a living part of my body it's it's just like a bone that's not there anymore right but it's true like our teeth when they're healthy at least they're alive they're there's blood and nerves and everything going into them and yeah so if your dentist says that's got O and yanks it out the living
1: part of your body is now been gouged out we, we've talked about this too much now it is starting to bother me Ah, my work is done. I have a dentist appointment next week that I now am not looking forward to. Thank you, Jay. Uh, so my last yucking it up is one that the entire book comments on that this is too, too gross, and that's the doctor at the town hall meeting uh, admits that her, Mother Abigail's body was eating itself. He says that since she's returned, she's had one small bowel movement filled with small sticks and twigs. One arm is covered in poison ivy. Her legs are covered in ulcerations, which would be running if her condition and somebody's like, wait a minute, doc, stop, stop, no more, (laughs) throw in the towel, no moss. Even the the crowd is is too disgusted by what's going on and just like, no more. Okay, we just want to make a reminder that you can support this show and get access to exclusive Patreon content, such as bonus podcast episodes by becoming a patron. Visit patreon.com. Slash two guys dark tower to learn more. So, Sean, we also have some listener back. Love hearing from our
0: listeners. Yeah, we heard from a couple of people through iTunes reviews and Facebook, and we even got an email recently.
1: You want to read one of the iTunes reviews? Yeah, sure. So, Jordan2587 with a title of All Things Serve the Beam said, I don't have enough good things to say about this show. The conversations are always thoughtful and interesting. Well, we appreciate that. Uh, love all of the discussion about the connections between the various King books. It's so nice to find a podcast where the hosts actually listen to each other. No interruptions or off-topic rants here. Sean and Jay are great, and two guys to the dark tower came is terrific. Keep up the fantastic work. You can thank our editing work for making sure there's no off-topic rants because <laughs> Jay and I go off topic a lot, but we, we, we don't leave it all in the show. I also heard from B
0: Lex08 with the title, Legit Podcast. If you're Stephen King or even just a traveler on the beam toward the tower, then these guys have you covered with all the juicy tidbits you may have also noticed or missed.
1: Also, thank you for that. That's a nice, uh, nice review. Yeah. So we also got an r- email recently from Chris K, who is in the Netherlands, and he is actually reading The Dark Tower in Dutch. One of the interesting things that he pointed out, and he said that we've commented before about how translation can sometimes be hard, and he said that there's no Dutch word for gunslinger. Mm. So the word gunslinger doesn't exist. And so it's translated as sharpshooter, which would be sharpshooter in English, which is close, yeah. but not quite the same. Like the connotations not right there. And he says that when he thinks of the word sharpshooter, you're thinking more about a sniper than a person slinging his revolver's. Western style, which I totally agree, yeah, and then he said furthermore, younger Dutch folks, those under eighteen, have incorporated English words into the language, so even sharpshooter is not a word that's often used amongst the youth. instead, they're probably just going to use straight out sniper, and definitely, Roland is not a sniper. he likes to work up close with his uh his guns. Yes, he wants to look you in the eye. Yeah, but Chris said some uh, other very nice things about the podcast, so we want to thank him for that and for that interesting insight. So thank you from the Netherlands. Yes.
0: Thanks, Netherlands. Lorenzo B. writing from Italy, and he's reading the Italian translation of Salem's Lot. And one of the interesting things that uh, he mentioned was, again, with translations, uh, how they're sometimes faulty, is that the title of Salem's Lot in Italian is Le Notte*? de Salem, which um, I guess is literally like the Knights of Salem, which makes absolutely no sense. It's It never includes the whole name of the town, kind of changes the name of the town, and it's not really about the Knights of the town. It's like, it's about the town, right? Right. Maybe if they just left it as like le di de Salem's Lot, that could have recovered it. When I mentioned that to him, he agreed and uh, thought that that would have been a, if not a perfect translation, a better version uh, of the title in Italian.
1: Yeah. I imagine that translating this type of stuff is very difficult, so more power to anyone who's able to do this. And I'm just glad that people are still interested in in reading King across languages and that those folks who are reading in a different language know enough English to listen to Jay and I. We appreciate that as well, because I know that we probably talk too fast and have a lot of idioms. So uh, I appreciate you all listening. They're working that much harder to
0: get our bad jokes.
1: Yes. (laughs) (laughs) There's people who speak the English language who don't get our bad jokes. (laughs) One more translation piece. I literally came across an article this morning. That was about a translation of Firestarter. And I think that in whatever language, I can't remember if it was Italian or German, the book was just called Charlie. They didn't even bother translating Firestarter. They just called it by the character's name, which was interesting. I can dig that as a choice, though. To that point, I also saw that there is a remake of, of Firestarter in the works right now. I saw a similar news headline about that. All right, well, again, thank you for all those reviews and comments. Again, we have in our show notes where you can leave reviews on iTunes, how you can contact us via email, and where you can reach us on social media. So keep those emails and writings coming.
0: Yep, thanks.
1: All right, Jay, time for some fun stuff. Awesome. Brad is the person in charge of keeping the power on in Boulder. And he has the unenviable job of speaking to the whole town at the meeting about what's happening with the power after Mother Abigail is dying and has returned and after all these people have died. And he starts getting heckled by somebody like, why are you even bothering with the power? We should go out west because, you know, we're all going to die anyway. So why are we worrying about this? Brad is somebody who, who's been shown to be very nervous talking in front of a group and mm-hmm. not very sure of himself. And all of a sudden he gains this, he's like, hey, my business is power. Who gives a shit for him? Meaning flag. And I just thought that this was this cool, like minor character, Brad, just standing up for himself. And like, that was sort of a USA, USA moment where like, <laughs> you could get up on your feet and like, yeah, who gives a shit for flag? I, I'm with you, Brad. Exactly.
0: I thought there was a really fun line. It's hard enough for a person to keep their own socks pulled up, let alone someone else's. (laughs) That is a nice line. (laughs) It sounds like something that you'd put on like a tombstone and make everybody who ever reads it scratch their head. What? All right.
1: Glenn, the sociologist, even though we've talked about how he's made this move from rationality to irrationality, still keeps his sociology roots intact. When he is talking in front of that same group of folks, he puts his thumb on the scale the, again by having a plant in the audience. Hmm. When he talks about Randall Flagg, he has Richie Moffat, who's the the local drunk, stand up and says, I'd give him a dose of the ever-fucking plague. <laughs> And everyone's like, "Yeah!" They all start clapping and laughing. Another great moment, and and Glenn had planted that the whole line and everything. And the guy picked up his cue immediately, and it worked. And Glenn's sort of sitting on stage, smiling, like, "Yep, I've done it again."
0: Yeah, I just had a really nice little uh, chuckle when when the explosion happens and all hell's breaking loose. Franny gets basically shoved by the the shockwave of the explosion. She gets like thrown through the air. Yep. The only thing that goes through her mind is fuck? <laughs> Such an intense moment. Everything's happening so fast. Her brain didn't even have enough time to say the. Yes. It was just, Wa fuck. And then when she lands, and then the, the sofa lands on her, she just s- says this or thinks the same thing, like, fuck again. <laughs> so I thought it was great.
1: Two Wa fucks in a matter of minutes. Love to see how that would be translated into different languages. Yeah. There's a, a nice little scene when Leo is playing his guitar and he goes through a couple songs and then he starts playing Baby Can You Dig Your Man. We're, we're seeing it from Larry's perspective and he like recognizes the, the notes right away. And Franny's there too and she's like, oh, yeah, I remember that song. It, it was like a really big hit right before the plague hit. Who sang that? I wonder who that was. It's and like she, right on the tip of my tongue. I just think it's great that, like, Larry doesn't mention – hasn't mentioned to anyone that he was a big rock and roll singer. You would think that that would come up, right? Like, what did you do before this? What did you do before this? Why are you wearing leather pants? (laughs) Exactly. But it hasn't. Unlike the character that is based on Larry from Lost, Charlie, who constantly is telling everybody that he was in in a band and had a big hit song.
0: <laughs> Come on, everybody. Anyone who has to keep telling everybody they're a rock star isn't a rock star. That's right.
1: That's why I never have to mention it. Speaking of rock stars, Jay, let's end our fun stuff with a uh, nice piece. There's a interaction between Franny and Stu. And Franny asks, Do you remember Jeopardy? And Stu says, Of course, here's your host, Alex Trebek. <laughs> Whenever I think of Jeopardy, you know what I'm thinking about, don't you, Jay? Bet you're thinking about Weird Al. I'm always thinking about Weird Al. Lost on Jeopardy. I lost on Jeopardy, I lost Jeopardy. Well, with that, that'll be all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our social media is available in the show notes. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. To support the show, visit patreon.com. Slash two guys dark tower. Next episode, join us as we read The Stand, Book Three, Chapters Sixty One Through Sixty Seven. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McCurr. Thanks for listening. Did you see that Empire Strikes Back was the number five movie in America this past weekend? No. Yeah. Like it was released in different drive-in theaters around the country. Oh, I see. For its 40th anniversary and because nothing else is out in the movie theaters, it was the number five movie in America.
0: Wow. Wow.